Before we jump in today, we wanted to tell you about a new campaign and newsletter from Getting Smart. It's called What If, and it's all about encouraging educators and ed leaders to think differently about education and learning. Every week, we will send you a What If question about the future of learning, leading, and community. This campaign is all about engagement, so we'd love it if you'd sign up and share your thoughts on Twitter or send them to editor at gettingsmart.com. Sign up for the list today at gettingsmart.com slash what dash if. We can't wait to see what you come up with. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today Rebecca Middles talks with Antonia Rudenstein about Redesign You and a new approach to K-12 content mapping. Antonia Rudenstein is a former high school teacher and is now the director of Redesign LLC, a consulting group that focuses on creating new school designs and program models, in addition to supporting leaders and teachers in the work of instructional and curricular improvement. She has over 25 years of experience supporting schools in thinking deeply about teaching and learning as it applies both to young people and adults, and experience as a school founder and leader, a teacher, and a founder of a consulting practice. Let's listen in as Antonia and Rebecca talk about curriculum, school models, and learning ecosystems. Antonia, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Um, Let's jump in. Why education? I thought I was going to be a lawyer um, all the way through high school and all the way through college, but it turned out that all my jobs in college were tutoring, substitute teaching in the (laughs) local high school. I taught a class at Oberlin where I went to college. I was a teaching assistant, like all these things I was doing and I really loved. And finally, I woke up in my senior year and said, "What, what is this lawyer thing? I'm really... It's really like the idea of how people learn that's fascinating to me. So that, that was that. I went to grad school in education instead, and that was in 1989, and here I am. <laughs> Appreciate that. That's very authentic, and it's like your, your body was telling you what you were going to do, subconsciously drawing you to that field. Um, You have experience as a school founder, a leader, a teacher, and even a founder of a consultant practice. How do these inform each other? Um, A lot. Uh, I would say the drive, I had my first teaching career in a um, urban adjacent community, a bedroom community. And um, uh, it was a fairly conventional large high school. I was teaching um, special education students from self-contained classroom, mm. as well as English language learner students. Um, I was totally unqualified for both of those jobs. Um, and uh, really kind of came into this question that has been really the question of my life, um, which is how do we make places where kids go to learn actually about learning? Um, And so that it's informed every thread of my life. So I worked in this relatively conventional high school. Then I moved to New York City and we started this kind of small groovy interdisciplinary uh, public school in uh, East Harlem, you know, all like a four hour block for 
multidisciplinary study and all these things. It was standards-based. It was prior to competency-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but again, like bureaucracy, the kind of needs of policy environment, the ways in which the system um, is shocked when you do something radically different, um, all pushed us. We all found ourselves becoming more and more like the conventional high school that I had gone to. Um, and it wasn't only external forces, it was our own internal <laughs> drive. Like, we don't know how to solve this problem. Let's, let's, you know, we bit off more than we could chew. So it was the whole ecosystem around us. Um, but again, like pushed me into thinking about um, how do we make this about kids and not about all the other stuff. Um, and then I started a fellowship. I had the I, I didn't start it. It was started by a small nonprofit and I was hired to kind of design it and be the director of it. And there I would join that thinking, well, what if you start at the very beginning with designers? Like, could you then make a school about young people? Could you then really like get to, it's all about kind of the experience of the learner. Um, and that was actually like an amazing experience. People came with completely different perspectives on what good teaching and learning was looking like, what a good school should be, where what should happen with young people. And we had this amazing, like dynamic, uh, interactive learning experience over the course of a year. Um, and some of those schools actually are like, they still exist and they're doing some amazing things. And um, so that to me was an example of, okay, designing from the beginning helps, but it, it's not enough. Um, so, and then I kind of moved on to redesign and have been working more as a consultant and supporter of people who are doing this work. So it, but it's all around the same question, which is what does it take to be about learning? Um, and it's really hard. It's mm-hmm. just really hard. Makes sense that you are fond of that term designer. I noticed it on your website with your staff and the folks and the people you get to work with. Um, and then the name of the company. I'm sure that's not accidental and very proactive stance, right? Instead of like a passive. How did you find your way to, from that to curriculum development? Um, I actually found my way to curriculum development in the very beginning of my career. I mean, even in college, the class that I helped, uh, that I co-taught was on uh, women and body image. It was 1985. It was a pretty radical arena at the time, not a lot going on around that um, and not a lot available. So we just designed a course and then we ran it for four four semesters. Um, so that was the beginning for me of that. It was amazing, totally empowering, exciting experience and very much about like what's our experience as opposed to here's the content and it needs to be mastered. Um, and then in my teaching career, when I first started, I unfortunately had a supervisor who was um, very racist. And when I asked him what I was supposed to do with the English language learner students, most of whom were young men coming from Laos and Vietnam, Cambodia, um, he said, just teach them the Pledge of Allegiance, that Mm. should do it. Um, And so there was no, there was nothing. The the classroom was empty. Um, So I just, And then the other students I taught were Irish American, Italian American, 
um, mostly uh, or exclusively um, low income. And uh, so I just decided we need a curriculum that's about power, that's about how you understand the system around you, that's about how you think about the world and how it works on us and how we can work on the world. And I just, I just wrote a textbook, um, which I would never show anybody now. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, I don't believe in it now in the same ways, but I was like, yeah, I was right. 23 years old. My students were 21 years old. I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, but that was the beginning for me of like, these are, you know, curriculum is storytelling. It's ways to think about the world. It's ways to unpack what's happening in the world. And it should speak directly to student experience, learner experience. And, you know, that was far more prescriptive than I would ever be now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it was the same idea. Like we need to unpack our own experience and we need to unpack like right. what we're going through inside of a context of academic learning. I appreciate the vulnerability of sharing that because I think that's a great mix of tension of intent and knowing you right. wanted to do better. And then what's resources are available. And it gets back to our favorite, you know, Maya Angela quote, when you know better, you do better. Yeah. But the grace about like <laughs> the intent was there and you were doing something other than the pledge of allegiance. So I, I think yes. that's, that's appreciated. Um, and I think who can't relate to this story if you've ever been a part of transformation, we were all at a starting point in the journey and you didn't lose sight of that intention. So when we think about, um, and I know, and maybe you'll also bring in some examples about how you had students uh, rewrite history, but we can bring that in maybe coming up here. Um, when you think about um, content mapping as you were sharing K-12, um, where do you where do you start with that? Um, I mean, I think our feeling at Redesign is you start somewhere, and it might not be the best place, but it's the best place we could figure out. Um, and so, um, we're very much you know people in some of our webinars around this project have um, asked some incredible questions and pushed hard on like, why are you doing disciplines? Why aren't you breaking down those barriers? Um, those are, um, we ran across recently a library in Ontario that is totally recataloging their whole library around kinship circles mm. as topics. So we clearly have a, like, I do not feel like redesign has an, an answer here. I feel like we're, we have a starting place that is going to evolve. And um, we see this as a multi-year project. And where we started was um, somewhere between conventional and not so conventional. Um, so we are doing disciplines, but a lot of these disciplines are somewhat interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing, uh, you know, the history of human basically of human societies that will include things about the United States and the United States history, but is not a, we don't have a US history that we're doing as a content area. We have a history of humans. Um, so that's interdisciplinary and it's, uh, you know, doesn't center the US as the most important thing. Um, so we're trying to shift some pieces 
And also we're doing 15 disciplines, not the four main disciplines of K-12. And that's partly because the world doesn't, we need more complexity. Young people need more complexity. I think part of disengagement is related to oversimplification. Um, and it doesn't, it's not relevant to the world. It's not relevant to the world that we live in anymore. It made a perfect sense at the time maybe, but it doesn't so much anymore, I don't think. Um, I think understanding anthropology, understanding archeology, span understanding different kinds of visual arts under, like this is all how you gonna make meaning of the world. I'll share some, uh, I pulled something from what you've written. Um, include the, and honor the multiple perspectives, cultures and ways of knowing that are central to full participation in the current world. That's what I hear you yeah. really expanding yeah. upon. Yeah. Um, and certainly can see how that would even show up in the ways that we teach history um, yes. and evolution of not just a country, but just a, as a society. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another one I think, um, privileges when your culture is taught as core curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then when others are taught as an elective, if you're lucky. Yeah, have that as an elective. Yeah. yeah. Why is uh, learner-centered then so important to the mission of redesign? I'm hearing it, but would love you to capture that as well. Um, I mean, we have a particular definition of learner-centered at redesign. Um, it's echoed in lots of different places and it's certainly not invented by redesign. Um, but the language of learner-centered um, so the ideas are not invented by redesign. Um, we've put them under learner-centered um, and that, that definition isn't exactly the same across the field, obviously. Different organizations, different uh, people, individuals have you know, sort of put their own definition underneath that. For us, it means three things. It means developing relevant competencies. Um, it means uh, developing critical consciousness really being able to look at the world, really being able to analyze one's own experience where we fit into something broader, being able to understand oppressive structures, understand um, the ways in which people's voice are taken away and their cultures are, are um, destroyed, but also celebrated. And so it's not all a negative, but it is definitely like, we're living in an oppressive system <laughs> and some people are benefiting from that. Um, so developing that, and then the final piece is really connecting and being part of community, which is not to us the same as like including parents in school decisions. It's, it's much broader and deeper and, and um, I, although I do think there should be parents deeply involved, but it's, it's also about connecting to community, uh, having ha where you came from, what your lived experience is, whatever it is, be honored, be respected, be celebrated, be known, um, be studied um, and be included both in the intellectual life as well as the kind of human life of um, not just young people, but the adults. I mean, we're a majority white female profession. And although we have diverse lived experiences, we also have some, some similarities and there is so much that we have never explored, understood, celebrated, even like spent a minute, you know, connecting with not, not necessarily for faults of our own, but just 
Um, but it's something that if we're really going to be great, great uh, creators of a place where young people are going to thrive, then that's a boundary that I think we all should be pushing on. How do you think this work would lead to global transformation with that in mind? So it's interesting. I, you know, I would never be so kind of bold as to say, <laughs> I'm about global transformation. That feels to me kind of imperialist and colonial. <laughs> um, I, um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of people already engaged in this work globally and in the US and some for hundreds of years. Um, so I don't think it's so much like the world needs redesign as it is we want to be part of a transformation that I think is going on. Um, and I'll give you an example. We had a meeting yesterday with the Department of Education of a um, Middle Eastern country. And they were asking, you know, could, could we develop, could, could, could the designers and residence program that we're launching this summer develop some of the things that they would like to have in their own uh, competency-based model? Um, and what I said to them was, well, you need to send people, you need to send the people who know your culture, who know your community, who know your families, who know your young people and have them develop the things um, that are going to serve them best. And we will work with them because I think we do understand some things about scaffolding, about how to build in higher order thinking and not reduce things down, build things up. So I think we do understand some things, but by no means do I think I'm kind of the right person to be designing for the world um, or that redesign is. So, um, so I don't know what will happen there, but there, we have people applying from Sydney, we have people applying from England, from Spain, from South America. So I would say that um, there's a small piece of this work that Redesign has spent, you know, I personally and Redesign generally have spent over 20 years trying to understand, which is how do you really scaffold things in a way that even if I'm 18 and I read at a so-called fourth grade level, I could actually have an amazing learning experience um, and be completely excited and engaged in what it is I'm doing. I do think there's some, and we're not the only ones who understand that, but I do think there's something about the scaffolding piece of it around academic reading and writing that we have, we, we have something to say, we're not the only ones. Um, and so, so I do think it could be, it could be exciting. Um, but we really do come into this with a very humble perspective that like the answers there's, you know, if there were easy answers, we wouldn't have such a disaster on our hands in terms of yes, taking care of young people. To add to that, I think um, there's definitely systems that get highlighted in our work of competency-based learning. Um, and many of those early systems held their local culture as important as core curriculum, mm -hmm. right alongside parallel to. Mm -hmm. And the expectation was that that would be brought in across the system and that students would have to meet that requirement. And I think that sometimes gets overlooked when we talk about competency-based learning that where, where it's been most successful is when it's been most responsive to the community it serves. And I hear you 
highlighting that in a much global way. And, I, and I'm excited about the work ahead for you and the organization and what that will bring. Yeah, I mean, when I talk with people about, I try not these days to not use the words competency-based learning as much. It's just learning. Right. Um, but when I talk to people about this, I who are not familiar with the term, because it's kind of a weird ed term. It is. Um, <laughs> I just say, you know, what are the things you want your young people to get really good at? Yeah that you think you're gonna make a difference for them and make the, help them like live wonderful lives and be able mm -hmm. to sustain themselves. And if they have families, their families. And like, what are those things? Then getting really good at it is competency-based learning. Mm -hmm. Whatever those things are, that's all it is. It's just getting really good at stuff. Yeah, I appreciate you calling out a term that's evolved, right? I mean, it was standards-based, it was standards-driven, then it was performance-based, and it's competency-based. But really, like you said, what do you want your students to know and be able to do? And and in some ways, I like to add, for me, like, what do you want them to have in order to lead their own life once right? they leave? Like, exactly. What we promise them when they walk in the door. Right. What do they need to yeah. be leadership? Yeah. yeah. And I don't think you can have agency without celebration of community and development Absolutely. of critical consciousness. I just, I don't see that. So I don't, I think kind of a, an ist neutral education doesn't give agency and ownership in, in my worldview. And I know that's just my worldview. Um, but I think with, without exploring um, all the structures that are in place that either benefit us or hurt us um, in complex ways, not always by intention, but mm -hmm. often. <laughs> um, I just, I don't know where agency comes from then. Right. Otherwise it's done too, and it's completely counter to the point of agency. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we're talking about learning ecosystems, essentially. What did founding a school teach you about those? They're brutal. <laughs> I mean, really, they just are. <laughs> It just are, and and I don't mean like that. There's venal people involved. I mean, you know, in every profession there are, but it's not that I think you know educators are evil at all. I'm a lifelong educator, but the system is is not about the individual who's working inside the system, um, and so um, you know, I I think probably starting a school didn't teach me as much about ecosystems, except I, when I left the classroom, I just thought, um, or when I left the school, I did think like, I, I can't really see how transformation happens here. Um, and um, so, you know, it does, I think it's sobering. We talked recently about lessons extracted and the tensions of the pandemic. Um, and you've talked a lot about um, things you've learned and, and how to lead schools and the systems and where it's been brutal and where it's been inspiring. Um, what are your dreams for the Learner-Centered Virtual School? Mm. And how do you see that rooted in community? Mm -hmm. So I wanna preface this by saying, so far these are ideas um, and that have not really 
had an inclusive, like we haven't had feedback from people. We haven't put these out into the world. So these, these will evolve dramatically. Um, but I can tell you some of the pieces of it that um, for me, I find uh, exciting. I think a lot about what are the barriers for, teach for teachers? What are the barriers for young people? What are the barriers for families? And how do we move those out of the way? Um, and, you know, part of the reason why the ecosystem is so complex is there's barriers at every level. So the feds put barriers, the states put barriers, the districts and the schools and teachers and family, you know, and again, not necessarily from out of, a, it's all out of a commitment to young people, but it is not always working on young people in that way. Um, so I'll just give you a really, really simple example. In most states or all states, you have to report grades on a on a quarterly basis or a semester basis. You cannot develop, you cannot support developing competency if that's one of your policies. You literally can't. You just, everybody has been stopped in their tracks by that. Um, and so, and that doesn't seem to be going away. Um, and so, you know, as long as I have to give a student a grade after 10 weeks and I'm not allowed to change that grade as they become more competent, I'm not, I have put a major barrier in young people's way. Um, and, it, and for many kids, it's fatal. Like a lot of Redesign's work in New York City was working with overage, undercredited high school students. So students who are 16 to 22 who had less than a freshman year of credit and they were working in schools where the goal was to try and build competency in like no time at all, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's, they're mm -hmm. 21 years old, they're aging out of the system. Um, and to, you know, diminish the dropout rates. And um, so competency doesn't look the same. I mean, the timeline doesn't look the same. Quarterly reporting for those students have literally almost aged them out of the system because they could not, they were always at an F mm -hmm. and they could never keep. So, so it feels like such a small thing, like, oh yeah, that's just one of the things we do. It literally is like stops young people in their tracks. Um, so I keep thinking about like all these other, and that's just one of, you know, however many, um, a regular, a calendar year, a school day, um, mm -hmm. you know, only having a certain kind of certified teacher to work with young people at a, at a certain time. That, that's all in the US and I'm not that familiar with what's happening in other countries around these things. And, um, but they, they'll have their own sets of things. So that's, if that's the context and the, barrier, and the goal is to remove it, my view is like my fantasy is something that lives above states. And that's why it's virtual. Um, because it, it, and, but rather than compete with districts and schools, I'd rather partner. So there's certain circumstances going on in the US right now that are creating a major problem for regular schools, one of which is an incredible teacher shortage, mm -hmm. um, and especially in certain disciplines. And so what, what is this, what's the plan? The other major problem that everybody talks about is there's not enough black indigenous and other people of color in the field. Honestly, like, would you go into this field? Really? 
I mean, it's everything. It's so hostile to teacher lives, to well teacher well-being. Um, if you're an elementary school teacher, you can't even go to the bathroom regularly because you have to be with the kids all the time. I mean, literally at the level of bodily functioning, it's brutal. Um, so, and again, like nobody's trying to keep you locked in your classroom, but that's the reality because kids have to be supervised. Um, so, so that's like, those are constraints. Those are barriers. Those are ways in which, um, you know, teachers are attacked constantly. I mean, it's just a very, very tough profession and the pay and the status are, are, you know, not commensurate with the job. So if I was a person of color and I could go be a banker or I could go do an architect or I could be a community activist, I would choose all of those things. Um, where I, if I could like directly help my, so I don't think saying we more people of color into the system is gonna work unless we change the system. It's a racist system. So I, I don't think, I, I don't, I wouldn't recommend to somebody who wasn't a white lady, honestly, um, to go in, and this is a tough place. This is, eats people up. So, and I desperately believe that the, that what young people need are people who don't look like me or not only. So, so that's a huge dilemma, but I do think like if we rethink about what the position, what the job is and how we think about it. So virtual school can do all of that, right? Because you could have, um, you could have teachers who are certified doing the things that you have teacher, enough teachers for, but you could have you know, young people who are in college tutoring uh, adolescents at one in the morning when they get home from their job or they finished hanging out with their friends and they need help because there's somebody there who wants to do a night shift. You could have a teacher in India where it's 12 hour difference in time teaching a class on Indian history or uh, Asian culture, you know, any number of things, yeah. or just physics, right? We have a shortage mm -hmm. of physics, they're just we physics, do. right? And it could be at noon in the US and it could be at midnight in the US and noon, noon in India or 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. I mean, it could be any number of things. You have infinite capacity to think about where learning happens, who's doing the teaching, who's an appropriate person. And then the connections to community, like I, I think amazing, if you ask a lot of people, where is your most powerful learning happening? A lot of people will talk about things outside of school. Mm -hmm. um, and so why do we believe that the only legitimate learning is certified teachers inside of school buildings? Why are we still doing that? And why does the policy environment enforce it? Um, and, you know, there's lots of reasons why I, I'm not, you know, it's not that I don't have any understanding of those things, but it's not necessarily necessary. Um, mm -hmm. And if you, and a teacher shortage is a good reason to rethink because you can't, we don't really want to say, well, let's just lower the standards and any one body will do. Mm -hmm. It's better to say, let's rethink this whole thing. Yeah. It's the right problem. It's the right problem. Mm -hmm. So let's do it. Let's like, let's get people who are excited to be with young people. Let's give them opportunities to do it in the way that works for them. Let's have people from the young people's communities, wherever those are, be offering things. 
Um, let's make it the grandmother. Let's make it the neighbor. Let's make it the mother. Let's make it the church. Um, like, why does this need to be the way it is? It doesn't. I mean, there's no research to support that it's working. Great points. <laughs> Great points. I mean, I We're didn't want to stop you because so you're well. on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing so well out there. <laughs> and so, certainly yeah. surface now, right? We've certainly yeah. seen a lot of these. This is the time. Yeah. Yeah. So the last two things I'll say about it, and I know I've gone on too long, is what we're imagining with the content mapping is that the content map will inform the virtual school. So it will actually be a place to figure out what's not working about the content map, to evolve it, to change it, to shift it, and to have it change over time. Because the virtual school will be like the lab where people are engaged in learning to do this better. The other piece is we're doing this designer in residence program, people will develop these materials. Those will be used and piloted in the lab. So we're not going to just throw stuff out into the world that have never been in front of young people and gotten feedback. We're going to, we are, we do believe in practitioners developing things. We do not believe in perfection. We do not believe that there is one way to teach something. We don't believe you should shrink wrap curriculum inside of like PDF docs and programs that can't be like modified. Like this has to be the stuff that communities can put their hands on and adapt. So the community connection is, well, what if we're doing something on, um, we did some work in New York City where there was uh, young people did, made documentary videos on policing in New York City, in their own communities. And so we built a curriculum that showed teachers how you could do policing, but it was built in such a way that you could take policing out and put in any topic you wanted. And mm. think about doing documentary video making in your community for the issue that is salient to the young people. And when you do documentary filmmaking, you are doing research mm -hmm. and you're telling story. You're doing all the most important things that we're trying to do in college. And you can even ask kids to write papers on it if you really, you know, if you want to hit that piece too. Um, so that to me feels like what we need to give to teachers is 80%, 70% of the house being built and believe in their expertise, their commitment, their knowledge of their community and their needs, their own passions to do the last 20%. So it's really about their community and what they need um, and not what you know I redesign think is best for the world. Thank you. Where can people find more about you, find out more about you and redesign and this work that you've mentioned? So we have a, we just put out our new website that actually is an updated <laughs> account of what we're doing. We've had a very outdated website for a long time. Your website um, looks beautiful. I just, it looks great. Thank you. Thank you. So that is an easy place to find us. Um, and we have a blog on there and people can sign up. We do not spam anybody. So you can just sign up and you'll get occasional updates from us. You can read, you know, we're, we, this is going to be an iterative process. So it's not that we do a content map this summer and then we publish it. We, a lot of people are booked for this summer. You know, we're doing things um, last, you know, I mean, not totally last minute, but we will have, we will need to create more opportunities for more people to weigh in, to give feedback, to add their thoughts over the next few years. So this is really a first step at like, how can we begin the map? 
Um, and so we will keep people posted. We're going to have, you know, we're going to ask for feedback from a lot of different people, young people, uh, parents, community members, church members, um, academics, professionals. And it, over time, you know, we'll meet with groups, we'll have, we'll post things publicly and ask people to give feedback. Um, so this is really just a beginning launch into the, into the space. Um, and with the intention that we're going to learn a lot about this and improve our own ways of thinking about this as we do it. I love the commitment. I love the commitment to being vulnerable and the process and acknowledging that true learning and hard work is messy and that you're bringing people to the floor and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it needs to be intentional and, and um, relatable as well as really important to the work of the people that you're trying to serve. I, I encourage people to go to redesignyou.org to find out more. Thank you for making space and time to share not only your story, but the work of your organization. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca. So fun to talk with you. Thanks to Antonia for being with us today. We appreciate her leadership and dedication to learner-centered education. We're super excited to see what Redesign's five-year plan will do for education. For more learner-centered conversations, be sure to check out episode 303 with Randy Ziegenfuss on learner-centered leadership. We'll put a link in the show notes and on the blog. All right, listeners, that's it for today. But before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.